Bible worm, Bible worm, reading the Bible with Bible worm. Welcome to Bible Worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. I'm Dr. Amy Robertson, Director of Lifelong Learning at Congregation Or Hadash in Sandy Springs, Georgia. And I'm Dr. Robert Williamson, Professor of Religious Studies at Hendricks College and the founding pastor of Mercy Community Church in Little Rock. We're here every week to discuss the biblical text, both as biblical scholars and as people of faith, one Jewish and one Christian. This week, we read 1 Samuel chapter 3, verses 1-21, through 21, where Samuel in his youth is first called by God. We are enamored of this text where the prophet doesn't realize it is God talking, and we reflect on the role of our community and our mentors in recognizing the divine voice, or to gut-check us when it might just be indigestion. We are moved by the loving and complex relationship between young Samuel and his father figure Eli, and its numerous points of connection with the story of Abraham and Isaac in Genesis 22. And over and over again, we see the importance of saying what needs to be said, even when it's hard, and the power our speech can have in shaping reality. Thanks for listening. Hello, Bobby. Hey, Amy. How are you this week? You're the next contestant on The Price is Right. On The Bible's Worm. On The... (laughs) Yeah. We should have a game show. I think that would be so much fun. I I think we should actually have a a game show. (laughs) I could be like, I don't know. I want to be the Vanna White figure who like points at things. I'm pointing very dramatically. (laughs) Yes, you you can't see him, but he's pointing dramatically. And then you could be the host. And one of the games could be, you have to guess whether it's the Lord speaking to you or <laughs> someone in the room. And everyone has to like yeah. close their eyes and guess who's speaking to you. We could totally I come love up that. With yeah. And then you yeah. could do your little voices. <laughs> I could do my voices yeah. to try to trick people. The grass withers, the flower fades. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. I will oh. never be able to read Isaiah 40 again without hearing your puppet voices. <laughs> that mm. shall haunt me forever. <laughs> yep. Yeah, oh, it's gonna Bobby. show up at like your retirement party or something. I don't know. In like twenty years, um, if, yeah. if you invite me to anything, that's gonna be there. That just means you're not gonna invite me to anything. Wait, I <laughs> didn't mean to ba- say that. I'm glad you said that. That's a good. <laughs> I'm never gonna get invited anywhere. Warning. That's a good warning. Yeah. Oh, Bobby, we have jumped a lot. <laughs> we have jumped week. so much. Yeah. So last week we were in Exodus. We were in Exodus. We had, yes, we were. We had just (laughs) crossed the sea. Exodus chapter 16. That's where we were. They were hungry. They were getting manna. Yeah. And now we are in 1 Samuel chapter 3. (laughs) Yeah. Which I describe to you as as no man's land because it is it's not in the Torah that the Jews read every week and it's also not in the Haftarah which is the selection of readings that we take from this this other section of of the of the Bible that we call Nevi'im. Yeah. This 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 chunk of text just doesn't really get read a whole lot in the Jewish yeah. community but you said it's actually kind of a a favorite a crowd favorite in your world. Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. I was saying that I probably 
between like being a youth going on youth retreats and then like being an adult leading things on youth retreats, I've probably used this text in that youth context, I don't know, like 25 times in my life. Wow. Uh, yeah. And That's so it is, yeah, I mean, at the, at the, at the root, and especially if you only read to verse 10, <laughs> it gets, this text gets problematic with verse 11. <laughs> yeah, that's true. It gets but darker you, after that. <laughs> if you read 1 Samuel 3, 1 to 10, which is what we always read growing up, then it's a really nice story about like a young person being called to mm-hmm. service of God. And so like, mm-hmm. it's, this is one of the call story texts of the Hebrew Bible uh, in the Christian tradition. And it's a young person. So you can say to, you know, middle school and high schoolers like, hey, y'all. God speaks to you too, and it's awesome. And you just need to respond. Like, that's what it was. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. we just totally ignored <laughs> what the part next. where uh, God actually tells Samuel what to do next. Yeah. I think, yeah, that, yeah. Was, I think that was a good call. Yeah, it was. That, that, that complicates this text enormously. It, it, <laughs> <sure> does. <laughs> it does. It does. It does. I mean, this is a crazy question, but what do you, I'm not going to ask you to catch us up between <laughs> crossing the, the Red Sea in here. Yeah. But given that a lot has happened, what do you think we need to know maybe more proximally to this story in order to understand what's what's going on here? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to say exactly what we need to know to understand this story (laughs) until after we talk about this story and we know what we needed to have known. Um, But here's my quick uh, summary of what I think maybe we need to know. We were, when last we spoke, uh, just after Sinai and uh, starting through the desert, and there was the feeding of the people in the wilderness with manna. And we talked uh, that time about how this is sort of anticipating sort of God's economy over and against the economies of Pharaoh in Egypt or something like that. Mm -hmm. Trust in God's sustenance, and that'll take you where you need to go. The people then have come into the land in the, in the book of Joshua and have taken over the land from the Canaanites and sort of become established. So they're no longer a wandering people out in the wilderness, but they're an established people in a land flowing with milk and honey. And this kind of changes things, right? And so, so now the question is, how do we be people faithful to God in this place where we have plenty instead of in this wilderness where we have nothing? except the manna that comes, like, what choice do you have in the wilderness, right? So this is kind of one of the struggles that happens a little bit in the book of Joshua, a lot in the book of Judges. In the book of Judges, there is no king. There is a sort of a tribal federation. The Israelites uh, loosely related to one another. They respond to various threats against them. And they're trying to find a way of living in the world. The the, the sort of famous passages of Judges are like the people turn away from God. They get punished, conquered by somebody. They cry out. God rescues them, establishes a judge. Everything's great. And then they do it all over again. So we get -hmm. get this cycle in Judges of obedience, disobedience, God saving, and God punishing. The very end of the book of Judges— you get this kind of picture of the world has kind of fallen apart. People are just doing all kinds of yeah. crazy things to each other, really violent, really, really horrible. And you get this repeated refrain, there was no king in mm-hmm. Israel, and so the people did what was right in their own eyes. The end of Judges then transitions into First Samuel, which is where, where we are right now, which is on the way to having a king. But we're mm-hmm. not quite there yet. 
before mm-hmm. we get the king, we've got to get the prophet who's going to anoint the kings, who is mm-hmm. Samuel, mm-hmm. who is the sort of main character of our text here today. So, so we're right in that period between the end of the tri- time of the judges and the beginning of the monarchy and a transition of leadership, a transition of, I don't know, there's all kinds of things, like an old way of being headed to a new way of being. All of that kind of gets caught up in, in this story right here. That was a good summary. It, it, it felt a little much. Well, <laughs> but, I mean, we skipped a lot of stuff. That is so. true. When you skip like three-fourths of the Torah and then the first two <laughs> books of the Deuteronomistic history, like it takes a minute. It takes a minute. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anything you would add or subtract from, from that? The only thing I would add is just to like zoom really into where we are now is that Samuel himself is the son of another sort of mm. miraculous pregnancy yeah. after barrenness that we read about last last year, I think. Yeah, we read the story of Hannah. Mm-hmm. And after Samuel is born, Hannah commits him to the service of the temple, commits him to the Lord. So you get the sense that from a very young age, he was spending most of his time, if not all of his time, living at the temple and yeah. sort of helping to serve in the temple. So, yeah, that's, that's, the, that's the world he knows. He's, he's, the, he's the helper. I love how you're like the one other thing that maybe is relevant. And that's like the, like, that's the main thing. <laughs> I don't know. Who's All that other stuff I said was sort thing. of background. Yeah. Who's to say? But the miraculous child set apart from birth, that, <laughs> that is pretty crucial to what we're doing. <laughs> so we are today picking up in Samuel chapter 3, verse 1. And in homage to Bobby's days at youth camp, we'll read verses 1 through 10 all in one <laughs> yeah. coherent chunk. Yeah. I am reading from the NJPS translation. Young Samuel was in the service of the Lord under Eli. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare. Prophecy was not widespread. One day, Eli was asleep in his usual place. His eyes had begun to fail, and he could barely see. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was sleeping in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. The Lord called out to Samuel, and he answered, I'm coming. He ran to Eli and said, Here I am, you called me. But he replied, I didn't call you, go back to sleep. So he went back and lay down. Again the Lord called Samuel. Samuel rose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, you called me. But he replied, I didn't call my son, go back to sleep. Now Samuel had not yet experienced the Lord. The word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. The Lord called Samuel again a third time, and he rose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, you called me. Then Eli understood that the Lord was calling the boy. And Eli said to Samuel, Go lie down. If you are called again, say, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. And Samuel went to his place and lay down. The Lord came and stood there, and he called as before, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel answered, speak, for your servant is listening. Doesn't that make you want to go lead a youth retreat? It's, it is just <laughs> such a comical scene to me. Is this, does this strike you as funny? It's like, it's like a Three Stooges, <laughs> like, yeah. You can have fun with that with kids. 
Yeah, it's very comical. And I, I appreciated that even in the way that you were reading it, like you were capturing some of the exasperation. I thought it was really nice. Yeah. <laughs> it's hard not to. It's hard not yeah. to. I really think okay. there's a Bible warm puppet ministry. Remember how I told you last year that I used to have a that puppet ministry? That you were a master puppeteer? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't master is a little strong, but yeah, we could we could take it on the road. We could, you could do all the puppets and I could... I don't know, like clap. Because <laughs> you don't need Wait, me for that. You are, you got all the, the voices. Puppeteer. That's true. I can, I can move them. I can move voices. their mouths and you can do the voices. That would be good. We could have a worm puppet. Who <laughs> <laughs> could make worm jokes at appropriate <laughs> moments or inappropriate moments? That any- Bible worm. Okay, sorry. <laughs> Bobby has been brought back to his youth by this passage. Yeah, so uh-huh. that's exactly right. Excuse mm-hmm. his youthful exuberance. Exuberance. But before we get to that, I just, before we get to the sort of, I don't know, funny-ish, silly yeah. part of it. Yeah, yeah. These introductory words, in those days, the word of the Lord was rare. Uh-huh. I just find that so poignant. How do you how Can do you, you just say a little more about it? that? Like, I just... I'm so curious what you like. I mean, I guess I I hear so often from people now, from especially from teenagers that I'm that I'm studying with, like why did the Lord talk to people all the time in the Torah and doesn't now? Yeah. Like what happened? Did something break? Or, you know, like I don't know. So just the idea that going all the way back to first Samuel and there's this observation that the word of the Lord was rare. Like it's like a, like a drought or a, yeah, I don't know, but I, I feel some connection to that sentiment today. Yeah. No, I really love that. And I had not really zoomed in on that too much, but I think that's really nice that this is sort of like the experience of the spiritual drought is not a new thing. Yeah. We have also seen that, you know, even back in Exodus, and we, we talked about how when the people cried out in Exodus 1, God remember, or Exodus 2, God remembered the covenant. And there's yeah. a sense of kind of a drought there, too. Like the people yeah. had been enslaved and God had not been actively engaged. And so that's, it's interesting to think about, like, you know, God, like the, the moments of experiencing God sort of come and go, ebb and flow. And that's mm-hmm. true, not just in our own time, but also uh, in, in the Bible itself. Yeah, and the way that that impacts, I mean, I understand this in part that 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 line is in here to sort of explain why why Samuel doesn't get what's happening and why it takes Eli three times to understand what's happening. Like this wasn't an ordinary, this, I mean, it's never ordinary, but you know, like this, this wasn't something that really happened. So of course it took them a minute to understand what was going on. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. Um, there's, they're out of practice. And it's interesting in this story that God has to show up three times. And there has, mm-hmm. there's like, so even when God is speaking for a time, it is experienced as though God is not speaking. And so even the end of the drought requires some processing to remember that it is possible that God might actually speak. Yeah. Because you, you tend to think of like, I mean, at least I do, of like Isaiah's experience in the temple or something like that, where God, or Jacob's experience at Bethel, where God is, you know, riding up and down an escalator. And you're like, oh, and here, like it's the third time or the fourth time, whatever it is, before uh, 
that anybody understands what, what's even happening. I think what's that's happening? important. Yeah. Along those same lines, the, uh, the, the word of the Lord was rare in those days. And then it talks in the next verse, Eli, whose eyesight was dim so that he could not mm-hmm. see. Mm-hmm. Eli is the seer <laughs> in, in Shiloh, right? He's the, he's yeah. the prophet and he, he can't see. And, you know, I think the Bible, the biblical text means that sort of literally, like he's old and his eyesight yeah. is dimming. But I yeah. think it's also trying to get us to think metaphorically that when you have someone who is a seer who is unable to see, like this causes a host of problems. And so right. even if God is speaking, even if God is appearing, then if the leadership is not able to see that, then it doesn't really matter. Right. So I think there's a poignancy there about the sort of the failure of, of leadership in, in, this, in the time of Eli, too. Yeah. Yeah. No, I would agree with that. And I, I see both that and a little bit of, of the, it's the man who's, whose vision is faltering, who, who still is helping the next generation to pick up the, yeah. the mantle, you know? I mean, Samuel yeah. would have just kept running back and forth all night. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I love that. The, I, I will want to dig into that some more as we go, but the, the figure of Eli in this text is such a complicated figure. Yeah. He, he's been pretty recalcitrant in some ways, we'll see. And also, as you're saying, he's the one who makes it possible for Samuel to become Samuel. <laughs> Even though <laughs> like it results in his, <laughs> in his demise. Uh, yeah, that's right. Down here a little later. That's right. Yeah. That's right. But we don't talk about that in the youth retreat. <laughs> so, no. <laughs> yeah. So let's take, I, no. uh, I'm leaning out of, out of our immediate text a little bit. Yeah. Do you think we need to do anything to set the scene here? I mean, I don't know. So it says it's young Samuel. So if, we're, if you're trying to picture how old Samuel is in this story, do you have any guess? He's a middle schooler. <laughs> he's a middle schooler. Good. Yeah, he's like 11 or 12. That's, that's very that firm a in really my head. That's a really specific answer. Yeah, I don't think it's in the biblical text any place, but it's very clear in, in my, my exuberant way. middle school mind. He's called a na'ar in the biblical text, so that seems like a reasonable, uh, a reasonable age to give him. And then this, it says the lamp of God had not gone out yet. Yeah, which seems like it could be a very profound metaphor. But and I mean, maybe it is. But actually, there was in the temple something called the lamp of God yeah. <laughs> that burned from evening to morning. So what we know is that this was. Overnight, sometimes. Oh, that's really helpful. Because when I first processed that, I processed it exactly the opposite of that. That it's like, you know, when, you're, mm. when you fall asleep on the couch before bedtime and the light is still on, you need to get up and turn it off. Interesting. But you're actually saying, yeah. and, I, and I like that, I think that reading is right. It just had not really occurred to me that this is actually the opposite. We're in, we're in the wee hours of the morning. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I think we're in the, this is when you wake up at four o'clock in the morning. That's what's yeah. happening. There's a couple of things there, relatedly, that I think are important. One is that we're in the temple, or in a temple, or in a shrine, but we're in Shiloh. We're not in Jerusalem. Mm. And so we're in a period Mm -hmm. before, I mean, I don't know how you think about it. Narratively, we're in a period before the Lord has caused the divine name to dwell in Jerusalem. We're sort of on the way, and that's going to happen with David and Solomon. So this is is an, an approved, maybe the approved, shrine right in shiloh but it is not yet in the temple mm-hmm. proper which is doesn't exist at this moment mm-hmm. narratively Thank you for that. yes 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 that's right the other thing is 
I don't know. Like, I kind of read this as Samuel is, I mean, I don't know. He's lying in the temple where the ark of God was. That sounds like he's pretty close into <laughs> the ark of God, yeah. Yeah, which is a super dangerous place to be. I mean, a super holy place to be yeah. and therefore kind of dangerous. Yeah. Uh, and the, you know, the ark causes all kinds of problems for all kinds of people later. Yeah. Like you try to grab it and things. It's just, I don't like, I don't quite know even what to do with that. But Samuel is in a very holy place yes. when all of this happens. Yes. Do you do anything with that? I mean, n- n- not really. I guess what I do with it is he's got this, maybe because he really grew up in the temple, it's almost like he has this sort of naive, familiar sense of like the temple is home, you know? And it's like, it's like, you know, when we have like a teen lock-in, you know, like they they (laughs) feel like the the synagogue is their home and they can, you know, sleep wherever they want to. Not that the synagogue is like sleeping next to the Ark of God, but there's just sort of a a sweetness about it to me. Like he has his little sleeping bag snuggled up next to the Ark and yeah. He doesn't get struck by lightning. Oh, no, he doesn't. Yeah, no, he does not. He gets, <laughs> uh, he gets a rather profound call. Yeah. No, I love that. It's sort of, the, sort of a coziness or something a little bit. As I was reading, when I came in verse 4 to, the Lord called out to Samuel and he answered, I'm coming. Even though I read it first in the English translation, before looking at the Hebrew, I was like, there's no way that says I'm coming Yeah. <laughs> in Hebrew. And yeah. lo and behold, it does not. It's my. It's like our buzzword for this yeah. season of uh, Bible Worm Hineni, yeah. which actually comes up a lot in this story. So many times that it starts reminding me again of of Genesis twenty two. But yeah, yeah. No, I think that's a really important connection, and and it it occurs in some very key moments in in this text. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In verse four, where I think you were, it's interesting because God calls Samuel, and Samuel says Hineni, like here I am, I'm present to you. And then he goes to Eli and says That's it again, right. Hineni, yeah. and then you called me. And so there's this interesting dynamic going on here where Samuel really wants to be present. He's very responsive, but, mm-hmm. but he doesn't understand who he's responding to. Yeah, it's almost like there's some kind of, I, I want to say like alternate reality or some kind yeah. of like where, where there is this real connection between Samuel and God, but Samuel doesn't even really know it yet. Yeah. I don't know. It's it's very, I agree with you that I find that, I don't know, captivating, but I'm not quite yeah. sure how to, how to unpack it. The closest I've really come thinking about that is, I mean, we've talked a little bit already about the sort of generational shifts and like shifts of context and new people. And this reminds me a little bit of the process that any child I think goes through where like their faith is their parents' faith or their faith mm. is their preacher's faith or their rabbi's faith. Yeah. And so they don't know how to do their own thing. And so of course when they respond, they respond to the God. When they respond to God, they're really responding to their parents. Maybe I'm a little getting a little psychological here, but No, I love that. And so one thing that happens in this text then is Samuel is able to realize with Eli's help as you as you importantly pointed out that oh no like you don't need to come through me to get there like you need now is your time to be present to the one who is calling you which is actually god god's self i love that oh and it just adds like a whole other level of poignancy to to this whole story yeah. the relationship between Eli and Samuel yeah 
I feel like I sort of already said this, but I just have to say it again. I love that the Bible has a story of someone being called by God and not knowing that it's God. (laughs) Yeah. Because I have, I mean, I wonder often, like when Abraham is first called and God says, like, get up and go to this place, I'll show you. Why does, how does Abraham know that's God? Like, why? How do people know when they hear God's voice that it's God's voice? And I guess I had always thought of it sort of as like, well, you just you just know deep in your bones or you just, yeah, you know, I don't know. But I just, I love that the Bible includes a story where you don't know. I, I, I love that too. I hadn't, I hadn't really thought about it in those terms. But, you know, we, we've read a couple of call stories. The one, that, the one that's striking me right now is this, the one after the one you were talking about. Uh, which is, or maybe it is the one you're talking about, I'm not sure, in, in Genesis 22, when God mm-hmm. calls Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. And the question, mm-hmm. like, one of the questions I always have with that text is like, how do you know that was God and not like, you ate some yeah. weird cheese last night? Yeah, <laughs> you know? seriously. This text has a, something going on in there about the importance of community in affirming the call or even helping you mm-hmm. recognize the call in the first place. And I mean, I don't know if this is, my personality or my being a Presbyterian or what it is. But I like, for me, when I think I'm experiencing God's calling in my life, my, the, my first move is to kind of check that with my community, you know, and say, here's what yeah. I think I'm hearing. Like, does that make any sense at all? And sort of weighing that response. So I love I this, love like Eli mm-hmm. and his community, or Eli is Samuel's community in, in that sense, or his, his mentor. Yeah. And he's the sort of one who kind of guides Samuel to the to the call. Yeah, I think that's that's beautiful and I think really a helpful way to think about what what the call looks like to an individual and an individual who is part of a community. I love that. So then in the in the last verse that you read at youth camp. <laughs> yeah. It like things get a little more emphatic here. I actually didn't notice, I shouldn't admit this, but I didn't notice until I was reading it aloud. That it says the Lord came and stood there. Yeah. That's intense. Before <laughs> the Lord was just calling. Yeah. And now it's like I picture God like standing there, you know, tapping his foot like, come on. Now that's really interesting. And to think like, yeah, had God been standing there the whole time? Yeah. Like it's not narrated. Or had God been waiting? Like you, got, you sort of got that sense back in the Moses story that God... We say we lit a bush on fire and waited. Yeah, and then <laughs> and waited. Now, finally, you've noticed. Yeah. Now I can talk to you. And so, like God's been hiding behind the ark or something, and like Samuel. And then now that Samuel gets it, God's <laughs> like, "Oh, here I am." Yeah. I mean, I don't know, but it, but you're right. There is a like a presence here. It's not just that Samuel is now present to God by saying "Hineni," but that yeah. God is now standing there. Yeah. 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 And but and even so, there's no visual part to this interaction with God. You know, God is standing there, but this is not about what Samuel sees. It's about what Samuel hears. That's right. Yeah. And of course, you get the the doubling of his name, too, which reminded me of Genesis 22 when God when I guess it's the angel of God is very urgently trying to get Abraham's attention to finally say, no, no, just kidding. Don't sacrifice Isaac. Yeah. Abraham, but there's, Abraham, yeah. Yeah, yeah, there's this, I don't know, there's, there's an intensity in this last call from God that, that wasn't there for the other ones. Yeah, it's interesting the way the narrative goes, because in verse 4, there's also Samuel, Samuel, and then in verse 
6, there is just Samuel. And then in verse whatever that is, 8, it, it there's no, it's just the Lord called again. <laughs> right. So it's sort of like this interesting, like it has been decreasing in its at least narrative urgency. And then we, then we get this like Samuel, Samuel goes back, like it's highly engaged again. You look like, like you look like. Not, no, I feel like that's not what my, that's not what my translation says. In verse four, he doesn't say Samuel, Samuel. No, in verse four, it just says the Lord cried out to Samuel and he answered, I'm coming. Oh, interesting. And then in verse six, it says the Lord called Samuel. And then it says Samuel rose and went to Eli. So that could be a translational issue. Oh, Amy. (laughs) (laughs) Apparently, I've only ever read the NRSV uh, of this text because you are exactly right. In verse four. Uh, the Lord called to Samuel and he said, here I am. The NRSV sort of imports that Samuel, Samuel. And I, to me, that's, that's a so super important part of this text. Like I'm having to reevaluate my whole. Your whole life of faith. Middle school. <laughs> <laughs> like it may not be that dramatic, but. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wait, here's a footnote in the NRSV. That's not what the Hebrew says. Is that what the footnote says? <laughs> we made this part up. No, I'm just kidding. I think it says, the Greek says Samuel, Samuel, but the Hebrew does not. Oh, I see. Anyway, we have That's a manuscript okay. variation. There is, one of the things we know about the book of Samuel is there's all kinds of weird text issues, and there's one. <laughs> I will say that I, I love, now that I know what the Hebrew actually says, I love your reading that, that, that verse 10 is the moment of urgency. That it has, I mean, it's not been lacking you know, urgency. But now that Samuel is engaged, God speaks with a particular urgency. I, I, I think that's a great reading. And I, I would not read the NRSV. I would read, <laughs> I would amend the NRSV now. Go with, go with the Hebrew on that one. And also reevaluate my entire childhood. Yeah. Well, that'll be a special episode, <laughs> yeah. our next special episode. Yeah. Do you make anything of the fact that Eli says to Samuel, this is the script Eli gives him? Yeah. Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. And what Samuel says is, speak, for your servant is listening. Is, yeah. Is that worth reflection or much ado about nothing? I do not know. Uh, in, in, in my world, there is nothing. <laughs> this might reflect sort of the studying of rabbinic texts that I have done with you along the way. But in my mind, there is nothing that's in the text that is not worth reflecting mm-hmm. on, <laughs> like literally every jot and tittle. And so, yeah, like I think it's really interesting that Eli gives the script, like you don't know how to handle this moment, so I'm going to tell you how to handle it. And it says, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. And, you know, I, I don't really n- know what to do. Samuel's repetition just doesn't include the name, the divine mm-hmm. name. Mm-hmm. I think that, like, to me, that seems significant, but I cannot say in what way I think it's in significant. Yeah. If you were going to spin out a rabbinic interpretation of a, a Robert Sinek interpretation, yeah. what might you say? I mean, I don't know. I, I think you could read it maybe as maybe, again, since this hasn't happened to Samuel before, maybe it seems presumptuous to assume that it really is Adonai. Yeah. Mm. I think I read this really quickly before recording, but I think what I read was that Rashi, this famous Jewish interpreter, said 
He didn't say Adonai's name in case it was uh, Shekhinah, which is like a particular manifestation yeah. of God's presence, but is not, I don't think you would use a divine name for it. Mm. Sort of like a, this is a heresy in all ways, but it reminds me of a Jewish version of the Holy Spirit, sort of like yeah. this sort of like, <laughs> yeah. you know, the, the, the God that sort of dwells most, most closely on earth yeah. with us. So, so maybe, maybe one of those things. The two ways that I sort of process it, what, one way is very similar to what you just said, which is Samuel didn't think, like he didn't presume to be able to speak the divine name, right? How can mm-hmm, I, mm-hmm. a boy, say this thing? I kind of like that one. The other is the total opposite of that, which is it doesn't need to be said. Like it is, it is clear enough now what is happening. Mm. So we don't need the address. We're just, mm-hmm. we're just talking to each other now. Mm-hmm. I think my energy is in the first of those. Uh, that Samuel thinks, how dare I speak the divine name? Either because who am I or like I'm holding out the possibility that yeah. you might not be who I thought you were or, or something. But I like the presumptuousness of it. Like I'm not going to speak the divine name because it's too wonderful, too wonderful for me. That would be such a funny inverse scene. Like first he doesn't understand that this voice is God and he keeps thinking it's Eli and then he thinks a voice is God, but actually it's Eli, like whispering his ear. <laughs> Eli's just messing with him. He's like hiding yeah. behind the ark. <laughs> like, <"Come> on, <laughs> that would be a real turn to the story. But that is not what the yeah, how the Bible narrates. No, that's it. not what's that is not what's about to happen. Thank okay, goodness, so we're gonna thank pick goodness. up uh, in verse eleven. Are we ready to move on? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Hi everyone, it's Bobby here from the Bible Worm Podcast. Today I want to tell you about a group called the Bible Worm Collaborative, which you can join through our Patreon. The Bible Worm Collaborative is a group of Bible Worm listeners who meet together to collaborate on our interpretations of the biblical text. Once a month, we meet on Zoom to discuss the narrative lectionary text for the following month. Amy and I often draw on the questions and insights of the collaborative, giving you a chance to shape the direction of the podcast. Starting this month, Bible Worm Collaborative members also have access to a new, exclusive Discord group where you can discuss the text with other collaborative members, offering insights, asking questions, and sharing resources. Amy and I check in regularly to offer our thoughts as well. Collaborative members also receive early access to episodes, a terrific Bible Worm sticker, and the satisfaction of supporting a good cause. You can become a member of the Bible Worm Collaborative by joining our Patreon for just $14 a month. See patreon.com slash podcast for details. And now, back to this week's episode. Verse 11. The Lord said to Samuel, I am going to do in Israel such a thing that both ears of anyone who hears about it will tingle. In that day I will fulfill against Eli all that I spoke concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I sentence his house to endless punishment for the iniquity he knew about, how his sons committed sacrilege at will, and he did not rebuke them. Assuredly, I swear concerning the house of Eli that the iniquity of the house of Eli will never be expiated by sacrifice or offering. This is the part that makes me laugh, like given my youth background. I know. I was like, so they didn't didn't do this part. (laughs) (laughs) They did not do this part. And can you just imagine, like, first of all, poor Samuel, who's like, seriously, like, this is what my task is? It's to like declare destruction to my mentor. Well, he hasn't been told to declare anything. Has he? 
That's like, true. Like, I feel like this is just like God is like, I've got to tell someone this tell secret. Somebody. I, yeah, you're exactly right. And I, li- I think I like that. I like that. It's such a, and I mean, it, it fits in some way with this idea of like this growing God's intensity in trying to get Samuel to listen to him. And I totally just, <laughs> I picture like this like whisper voice. I mean, not that God has to whisper, but. Like this, this secret is burning a hole in God's pocket and God yeah. has got to tell somebody. <laughs> yeah. I have always read this as uh, Samuel is supposed to say this thing, but you're exactly right. There's nothing in there. This is God making an announcement. I've got to tell somebody. I like that. The, the other thing that I, that I like about that, I think is important about that is, you know, if you read it, as Samuel's supposed to declare this thing, mm-hmm. then it's here's the young man, the young generation, like sort of announcing the destruction of the older generation. But if you read it the way that it's <laughs> written, the way that it should be read, this is just God telling Samuel what's up. Mm-hmm. So when, the, when this thing happens, Samuel is not going to be confused or left out or traumatized by like it's it's preparing him to see what's about to happen but he's not involved in it that i like yeah i I like that extra um you added some some divergence from my initial reading in there that i really like that it's not just god can't god's got to tell someone this secret (laughs) but but that this is going to be a scary thing for samuel to see and to know that while it will be terrible for Samuel in some ways, like this is, it is, things are unfolding as they should. Yeah. And, you know, that he can try to prepare himself for that, but that yeah. he can know that it's, this is, it is God acting. Yeah. I think that's yeah. right. You're going to see some stuff, Samuel, but I want you to know, like, this is, this is what it's going to be. And it's, it's all in the, it's all in the plan. Oh, that's such a, that's such a. Uh, more compassionate reading of God than my like. God is so like worked up and hot under the collar to do this fantastical act of violence that he's got to tell somebody that God's yeah. got to tell somebody. So yeah. yeah, no, yeah, I like yours better. We'll go with yours on that. <laughs> <laughs> now, when you're reading along this text and you see that I have told him and he knew about the iniquity and he didn't mm-hmm. do anything about it. If you're reading this text and you don't know what that's about, it's worth going back and reading the end of chapter two, Mm -hmm. uh, starting in verse 22. And Mm -hmm. there we get a description of Eli's sons, uh, Phinehas and Hophni, and the kinds of things they're doing. They're having sex with the women who attend the entrance of the temple. They're taking the best parts of the offering of the people that are, they're bringing to God and the priests are like eating all the best parts of it. And... Eli tries in verse 23, but in chapter 22, to correct them, but it says they wouldn't mm-hmm. listen to their father. Mm-hmm. And then God sends a prophet who's like, seriously, y'all. So there have been, in that previous text, there have been warnings. Eli knows what's up. God has told them, you need to change your ways. They have not been able to do it. And so this punishment that God's announcing in our text really is something that has been, like, A, there are reasons for it. And B, yeah. it has been made clear previously, and there's been a chance for response, which has not been followed up on. Yeah. I think that's important. No, I agree with you. That, that is very important. And alongside that, I find it so striking, and I guess this is just so 
biblical in some ways that, I mean, okay, so Eli is not able to get his sons to stop their ways. He does rebuke them, but it's Mm -hmm. much more sort of concerned with the reports that the people spread and the punishments that are threatened against them. Like, it's not so concerned with like, you're actually doing the wrong thing. You are in the wrong. Mm -hmm. But I guess I'm surprised that like, this is also like coming through Eli instead of directed more specifically at his sons. Like, it seems like God is mostly mad at Eli. Yeah. No, I think you're right about that. And that's also one of the things that I kind of was drawn to in this text in ways that I don't entirely know what to do with. But there is a sense of responsibility. Eli has a sense of responsibility, or God has a sense that Eli is responsible, I guess is the way to say that. Even though Eli has sort of tried to intervene. And so the, the punishment is not simply for the ones who are doing the wrong thing. The punishment is also for the one who is not able to stop the, the ones who are doing the wrong thing. So we're, we're kind of all tied up in this thing together. It's a biblical yeah. idea, very much yeah. so, right? This, I mean, that's the whole book of Deuteronomy, right? It's like you succeed or fail based on not just your actions, but the actions of the community. So we, we yeah. all need to be in this thing together. This is sort of a microcosm of that, like your family, Eli. But God yeah. is not sparing of Eli at, at all uh, in, this, in this punishment that God announces. And I think it's worth saying here, too, that this is not just like your typical Israelite family. These are people that have real authority and leadership yeah. in the community. So yeah. the, the misdeeds that they are performing have a really significant impact on the community in the way that, like, you know, Joe Israelite yeah. might not. Yeah. That helps me make a little more sense of it. Because, I mean, his sons are grown men. Yeah. It's not like he has a father's responsibility to them to be able to control their behavior. But he does have a responsibility to, the, you know, to manage the priests. You know, he's supposed yeah. to be heading up this whole operation. And, and they are his sons and they're also his priests. And Yeah. Yeah. I think that's super important. And, you know, I, I appreciate your saying that because I kind of have made that shift in my head, but I don't. I had not articulated that in any kind of a way until you made that connection that, you know, these are the priests who are attending the Ark of the Covenant in the main shrine in Mm -hmm. Shiloh in this moment. And they're taking the offerings of the people. Like, they are not simply doing some things that are wrong. They are abusing the religious authority, the unique religious authority Mm -hmm. that has been Mm -hmm. bestowed on them by God. Yeah, and that's what the punishment is about, is you are misrepresenting God. Mm-hmm. in the way that you are conducting yourselves in the, in this shrine. That's mm-hmm. that's urgently important, I think. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And you do not get to throw your hands up and say, "Oh well." Yeah. <laughs> you know, you you are you have responsibility here. It's a really heavy first prophecy to get for, you know, a middle schooler. <laughs> yeah. And I keep thinking of how Jonah doesn't want the prophecy that Jonah gets. And that it's, but there's a possibility for it to be turned around. Like, like we just mentioned in here, there's nothing actually that Samuel's asked to do with this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it is also stated that there's, there's not really anything that can be done to change what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. So not only is, is God not asking for an action, but like there's, there's, there's no way to subvert this plan. 
That's heavy. Well, I guess it would be heavy if there were a way to subvert it also. Yeah, it's kind of heavy. It's kind of heavy either way. Yeah. Yeah. Like to me it's theologically heavy that it that there are things that you can't come back from. Yeah. From the perspective of Samuel, it relieves the heaviness that he doesn't yeah. have to feel any responsibility because there's nothing he could do anyway. Yeah. But the notion that it is possible to offend God to the extent that God is just done is done. That's right. And I think that that is, you know, everywhere in the in the Bible. Mm-hmm. It's not the only thing that's in the Bible, for mm-hmm. sure. Mm-hmm. But it is consistent. It's not just this text. Like in, in the Hebrew Bible, in the New Testament, it, it, it is possible to offend mm-hmm. God to the point of no return. Mm-hmm. That's heavy. Yeah, sure is. We didn't talk about that in our middle school retreats. <laughs> Thank goodness. <laughs> I've been writing children's service outlines this morning before our conversation and and that did not make its way in there either but we'll yeah go back and yeah add it in <laughs> i think you should go back and do it and let us I think so. let us know how it goes we'll have a uh, yeah that's good yeah mm-hmm. <laughs> we'll end the puppet show with no i'm just kidding <laughs> okay is there anything else we want to talk about in this section of text i think for me that pretty much covers what i think is there's a lot I'm sure one could do with that text, but I, th- I think we've hit the main the main points. Okay. Then we will pick up in verse 15. Samuel lay there until morning, and then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord. Samuel was afraid to report the vision to Eli, but Eli summoned Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he answered, here. And Eli asked, what did he say to you? Keep nothing from me. Thus and more may God do to you if you keep from me a single word of all that he said to you. Samuel then told him everything, withholding nothing from him. And Eli said, He is the Lord. He will do what he deems right. Samuel grew up and the Lord was with him. He did not leave any of Samuel's predictions unfulfilled. All Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was trustworthy as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord continued to appear at Shiloh. The Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh with the word of the Lord. Maybe one of my favorite things about this whole story that we're reading is the beginning of verse 15. That he lays there till morning. Yeah. And then he gets up and opens the doors. Like, get up and do your job, Samuel. There's like, you've received this terrifying and horrible news. There's nothing you've been told to do about it. So we begin again. Like, what's the next thing you have to do? The next thing you have to do is open the doors to your church or your synagogue or your shrine at Shiloh. I love that. And then, you know, you're making me think in that next verse when Eli calls Samuel and Samuel says, Hineni, here I am. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's the same response he's always given. So even though he now knows, that Eli and his house stand in God's judgment. Samuel's still present to Eli in the same way that he was before. So I, I had not really thought through that, but I, but I love that. He's, he's got this thing, and then he, he continues on with, with his life, with his responsibilities, and with his relationships and, yeah. and honoring all of that. Mm-hmm. It really, it, like the, that sort of like pull between Samuel's enduring connection to Eli and Samuel's 
burgeoning connection to God. Mm-hmm. Remind, again, it reminds me so much of Genesis 22. And even in the language here, like Samuel, my son, like the mm-hmm. way that Abraham speaks to Isaac in the middle of Genesis 22 with such great, there, there's a real affection between them. And there is this yeah. sense of presence to each other, even while there is, I mean, of course, they're very different stories in some ways, but but even while there is this really terrifying knowledge or or possibility in one of their minds. No, I love that. And one of the things that I, you know, oftentimes when we, or I think so, when we read oracles of judgment, the tendency is to want to be like, ha ha, you mm-hmm. person getting God's judgment, like you deserve that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And here, I mean, God has been fairly clear that Eli deserves what's about to happen to him. And yet Samuel's response is that compassionate response of relationship and not the ha-ha. And honesty, the honesty that Eli asks for. I mean, I feel like it it would be entirely possible to envision this story happening where Eli would say, tell me everything, and Samuel wouldn't. Yeah. Samuel would say, like, it was indigestion. It wasn't God. Like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know? And I mean, I know that I know Eli offers this little, you know, curse language here. Thus and more may God do to you. Yeah. But, you know, I don't know if God really would have followed through with that after he's already judged Eli so harshly. I just, I read Samuel's honesty as another way in which he really is fully present yeah. and connected and tied into Eli. Yeah. Now, I love that reading. I really love that reading. He he trusts and loves Eli enough to say, look, this is the thing that I know, and I, I respect you enough to tell you. Yeah. I also yeah. love that Eli here in, like invites that attitude. I mean, he does it a little threateningly, yeah. as you were noticing. As yeah. You were noticing. Yeah. He but he sees that, yeah, he sees that Samuel's afraid that Samuel doesn't want to say anything that's going to offend him, that's going to hurt him, and he says, "No, no, I really, I really want to hear it. Like, I really need to know." And to me, there's something important in that model too to say, like, I got a lot of respect for Eli in this text, even though, even though he ends up, you know, me not too. doesn't turn out too well for him. Yeah, but he kind of takes what's coming to him, or you know. He is not trying to live in denial by yes. shutting down the younger generation and say, I don't want to hear what you have to say. He's right. saying, I want to face what's coming and I need you to tell me. And, and, and Samuel does. Yeah, nor does he implore Samuel to, he, I mean, he doesn't yell. He doesn't like, you know, shoot the messenger. He doesn't implore Samuel to try to advocate on his behalf. Mm-hmm. He doesn't, he doesn't do he doesn't do any of those things, maybe maybe in part because he is just his general character leads him to be accepting of what what Samuel says God has decreed. And maybe also because of his that's part of his way of honoring Samuel. Samuel's a youth. Yeah. You know, like he doesn't he doesn't need to be all in the middle of this. Yeah. No, I think I, lo- yeah, I love that. The other thing that is true is that Eli already knows all of this, right? God has told him as much in chapter two. Mm-hmm. And so this doesn't come as a surprise. This is more Samuel has given confirmation and Samuel has, I guess, said this thing is about to happen. Like the time has arrived. 
And so, I mean, I don't even quite know what, what to say about that, but Eli knew. Eli should have known. Like, Eli did know. Mm-hmm. And so Samuel is confirming the judgment, not conveying the judgment. Yeah. That goes someplace, but I can't name it right now. Well, no, it. Do- I mean, it does. And I, I also can imagine that even if Eli knew that this was happening, having another outside person, especially someone you've sort of been treating as your son, also know makes it different. Yeah. You know, I could see still having some kind of big emotional reaction to it just, you know, based in shame almost because now, you know, this young person that you've been mentoring knows that you have done something so extremely bad that God is done with you. I've been going back and forth about Eli's response in verse 18. It is the Lord, let him do what seems good to him, is how it's translated in the NRSV. Mm-hmm. On the one hand, I read that in a way that I think you sort of mentioned before. Like he's not begging Samuel to do anything. He's accepting his fate that's coming to him. God is God. Thy will mm-hmm. be done. Part of me really respects that. Part of me thinks like, come on, man. Like <laughs> do <laughs> something. Like don't just say, yeah. ah, well, God will do what God will do. Right. And maybe he thinks he's done everything that can be done. Yeah. But like in my mind, just because God says there's nothing that can be done does not mean there's nothing that can be done. Because like we've seen Abraham argue God down and, you know, back in Genesis 18, we've seen Moses argue God down. I mean, we haven't because (laughs) we skipped the whole Torah. But if you read the Torah, (laughs) you have. (laughs) Yeah. So like part of me is like, Eli, come on. Like, I don't know. Like, I I feel like he is so reluctant to say to his sons what needs to be said to his sons. Yeah. Yeah. What do you do with that verse? Uh, No, I mean, I think I connected exactly the way that you just did. Like, it seems almost like a character trait or maybe a character flaw of Eli that he doesn't recognize his own power. Like, he doesn't claim, he doesn't try to claim it. Yeah. He's, he doesn't really, he, he doesn't fix what's going on with his sons, presumably because he doesn't think he can. Yeah. I mean, I guess that was really presumptive. I don't know if that's why he doesn't, but he sort of like half-heartedly tries. Yeah. But then but then gives in. And here it's like, well, if God has already decreed it, what is there to lose? Like <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. You know, see if you can if you can change this at all. But yeah, he he does have like a passivity about him in some ways that is to his detriment in this story. To me, that's such an interesting contrast to what Samuel, like, I mean, Samuel has needed some invitation, but Samuel has said what needs to be said to the person to whom it needs to be said. Eli seems not able to do that in a a way that's effective anyway. He, He cannot say what needs to be said in a way that changes people's actions, his son's actions. We don't get all the details of that, really. And then Eli, I mean, at least the impression I get from the text is Eli's not really doing anything wrong. Like, he's not sleeping with women at, yeah. the, at the entrance to the temple. I don't think he's taking the best parts of the offering. Like, yeah. he's kind of doing his thing, but, the re- but he's going to get punished anyway, And the, yeah. as we were saying. And the reason is because he cannot say to the people who are doing the wrong things that they're doing the wrong things in a way that changes their behavior. Right. That's harsh. It is really harsh. And, I, and true, 
Yeah. And I mean, I think I can read his response because it is a response to Samuel in part as maybe maybe trying to protect Samuel or maybe like what is, mm. you know, if he realizes that his his leadership and his life are coming to an end, what does he want Samuel to take from this? Mm-hmm. But it is, yeah, there's like sort of a resignation about yeah. I can't change. I can't change things that maybe you can change. Yeah. To me, this is a deep tension in faith and a deep tension in the biblical text. Like this sort of reminds me of the two portrayals of Job in the book of Job, right? In the narrative part where he's, Job says, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. And then, and then all through the poetry, Job says, God, why are you doing this to me? You got to stop it. And I feel like there's this tension and I experience it in my own life too, about when do you keep your mouth shut and take your lumps? Mm-hmm. And when do you try with everything you got to convince God to do something different? And I feel like in the biblical text, it's not always clear when or what is even possible in, in that sort of moment. No, I think that's right. There's one other thing in this section that that sort of stood out to me that I that I wanted to ask you about. Yeah. In the beginning of verse 19, well, the, actually the second half of verse 19, God did not leave any of Samuel's predictions unfulfilled. Yeah. There's something about the articulation of that that just is surprising to me. Like it makes it sound like God has an obligation to Samuel's predictions instead of Samuel always predicted right. Yeah. You know what I mean? Do you think, I'm, I don't know. Does it strike you as a, a, a strange turn of phrase? It is a very strange turn of phrase to which I had not paid any attention at all. I have a thought about that, but I, before I say my thought about it, I want to ask you if you came to any kind of conclusion about it or, or just more of a pondering. I mean, I came to sort of a boring conclusion about it. Which basically the biblical text tells us in the next verse that, you know, wanting to ensure that the people trust Samuel almost more than wanting to ensure that Samuel always gets it right. Like that God needs that. God needs a reliable (laughs) messenger. And, you know, especially if, if we're moving towards kingship here. Yeah. And so even if I have... In my imaginings, even if Samuel got something slightly wrong, God's main goal, more than conveying a particular message, would be to build the relationship between the people and yeah. Samuel, which is not usually how I think about prophets. That's really interesting because my head sort of went to King David about, I can't quite remember, but something sort of similar is said about David, like God blesses him and everything he does or something like that, which, you know, is kind of open to the, like, is it that everything God, everything David does is godly, which Mm -hmm. I think is hard to argue, (laughs) given what the biblical story about David. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you got to really look the other way with some of the stuff, yeah. (laughs) Or is it that David is God's guy, and so God's going to bless the things that David does? Yeah, yeah. The other place that I go with that, which I, you know, I'm, I'm working on a project on, on Walter Brueggemann right now. And so it, it sort of pervades my every thought. But one of Brueggemann's uh, th- uh, things that he likes to say is that speech leads reality. 
like you, you say things, you create, a, you create a world in which different things are possible and then those things will become like real. So it's not, it's not that you, re, you respond to or describe the world, it's that you lead, you lead the world. And the way this is stated is very much along those lines. I haven't looked to see if, if Brueggemann does that with this text mm-hmm. or not, but mm-hmm. the, the impression you get is Samuel speaks things and God brings them into being. And so prophecy is actually leading the way to the reality that's unfolding. Wow. That's a really powerful idea about like the, the, the possibility of prophecy, yeah. the possibility of yeah. utterance, the possibility of preaching. Yeah. And I'm just, you know, I, I mean, now I'm channeling my inner, inner Brueggemann, but. No, that is really, that is really, really powerful. You know, it's funny. We're, um, we're recording this on my anniversary at my wedding anniversary, and I found recently a quote that we read at my anniversary, which was so like where I was in my life at that time. But it was very much that idea that when we commit ourselves to something and speak that commitment out loud, the fates shift and align. Like we're not trying to guess where fate is going and align ourselves with that, but that we actually have some, some say in it. I love that. Yeah, I love that. In this text, you know, the very next thing is uh, Samuel was a trustworthy prophet of the Lord and the Lord appeared to him and the Lord revealed himself to Samuel by the word of the Lord. Like it becomes clear in the next verses that God is continuing to be in relationship with Samuel and is actually giving Samuel some things. But I love the way the order in which this text goes, which is what I think you're noticing, uh, is that the speech, the speech comes first and then God makes the speech happen. And then, oh, by the way. Samuel really is, you know, a prophet mm-hmm. of the Lord. Mm-hmm. So it's not that he's out there on his own and just doing things willy nilly. Yeah, he's the, like growing into it, maybe getting mm-hmm. better at it. But the important thing is he's speaking things that God then makes true. That's where the yeah. text wants us to focus. I, I love that. Speak the things, say the prophecy, given the connection to God, and that will change the way the world is. Yeah. Holding that in one hand and Eli's sort of passivity and not wanting to claim his own power in the other hand is really um, oh, yeah. stark. I mean, yeah. that's stark. Yeah. Amy, I love that. So the sort of passive, uh, the Lord will do, how, what does he say? I forget. Yeah, the Lord will do what the Lord deems right. Yeah. The Lord will do what the... Lord deems right versus I'm going to speak a prophecy and God's going to follow my lead. Yeah. And maybe some of that comes with, comes with youth, you know, mm-hmm. like we Samuel's, a, he's still a youth. Yeah. And, and maybe willing to make mistakes and, you know, say what he thinks is true. And I don't know. No, I think that's right. And I'm shifting a little bit into kind of what I think this text is about, but yeah, let's go there. Let's go there. I think I think you're right. It's a little bit about youth. I also think it's a little bit about uh, stability or power structures, right? That mm-hmm. Eli, who has been in charge, his family's in charge, he has come to think that there's nothing that can be done. The, the world is the way that it is. And God does what God will do. And his sons are doing things wrong. There's nothing he can do about it, <laughs> right? Um, God's going to destroy his family. Legacy, there's nothing he can do about it. The Lord will do what the Lord will do. And 
in that sort of a framework, like all kinds of mischief takes place in this story. And I think in reality as well, like once we've kind of started to think there's nothing, there's nothing that can be done. And especially in this kind of religious context where what's happening, as you were pointing out in this text, is it is the people responsible for God who have given themselves over to this other way of living, right? They're, they're doing the things that, the, you know, the world, however you want to talk about that, they're reliving the, the world of Pharaoh and acquisition of women and of food and looking out for themselves first. And they're not living in this alternative world that God has proposed in the book of Deuteronomy or the manna in the wilderness. And so the religious leaders have gone astray and the sense is there's nothing that can be done about it. But when the word of the Lord shows up and speaks, then the one, the young one who has the capacity to hear freshly says, Mm -hmm. I got to say this thing and I got to speak its truth and God's going to come along and the the world is getting ready to change, y'all. And to me, that's such a powerful thing about, I mean, about generational shifts, about the power of speech about what we do when we read the Bible or when we preach and we we remember the way the world can be and the world follows along behind us. And also a word of warning about those of us who are in positions of religious authority, but also those of us who are just people of faith who have come to think that there's no distinction between the way the the world of Pharaoh is and and the way the world of God is. And we've come to think like the world is the way it is. There's nothing we can do. And this text is saying... That's not true. And even if you yourself, Eli, are not doing something that's wrong, if you're just unable to speak the words that shift people back to doing what's right, the judgment is coming for you. Yeah. That's harsh. That's harsh. But Samuel is the one who has the guts to speak the truth, both to Eli and also then to the people. And, and, it, cha- and it changes the world. That's beautiful. That's really, really beautiful. You could totally bring that back to youth camp. <laughs> yeah. Oftentimes. Totally yeah. And I will say, Amy, sometimes we give the narrative lectionary a hard time and, and maybe rightly so. But I will say one of the things I love about the narrative lectionary is that it doesn't stop at verse 10. Yeah. I'd have to go back and look yeah. at the revised common lectionary, but I think it probably does. Mm-hmm. And if you, if you let text speak more fully, they will often say things that cannot be said if you stop mm-hmm. at verse 10. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I love that. When you're reading this text, having not experienced this at youth camp, mm. where does your head go? I am feeling really drawn into this last encounter in particular with Eli and Samuel. And I guess I'm thinking about what it's like to still love someone and treat someone like a human being Mm. when you know they have done something bad. Yeah. Like, and even when you know, like in this story, it's very sort of extreme that like God has cast judgment on this person. Mm. I feel like it's so easy in those situations to just say like, well, I'm, it's almost like they have cooties then. Like, (laughs) I'm going to keep my distance from that person. They are like outside the camp. They are not my people, you know, I'm going to distance myself as much as I can. Yeah. No matter how deep the relationship was before. And I feel yeah. like this story illustrates some way of 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 doing both, of like acknowledging yeah. what what is true and yeah, this <laughs> 
yeah, I have really bad news for you. And, and it is because of something that you've done. And like, and all of that, like all of that is true. And also we can have a conversation and I don't need to immediately shove you out of my life. Like I'm not afraid to be around you because of that thing. Like they can, they can sort of both be true in some way. And I'm, I'm thinking about this Brian Stevenson quote, you are better than the worst thing you have ever done. Mm. In some ways it doesn't fit this very well because God doesn't seem to think so. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah. let's take God, take God out of it. I'm talking about the human relationship sort of right now. And I just, I don't know. I really, I love the possibility here for an example of maintaining love love for someone and the humanity of someone who has indeed for real not falsely accused has really they've done the thing yeah and that that it doesn't have to be one or the other they can they can coexist i love that amy so much and i feel like though that's such an important corrective or addition i don't know how you want to characterize it but to, to what i was saying earlier to say like there is a speaking of the truth Yes. And there is a speaking in love, which is the honoring of the relationships that that go. And this text is very much in that in that world of sometimes some things need to be said, mm-hmm. and we need to be present to one another. We need to hineni one another in ways that honor both our presence before God and also our presence with the people and with whom we're in relationship. Yeah. I love that so much. And I'm trying to think about, like, there's that relationship between Eli and Samuel, and then there's the relationship between Eli and his sons, which we don't get too much about, at least in this text. And I I don't know what to do there, because I feel like Eli needed to have, maybe maybe he needed to have spoken the truth more firmly. Maybe the love overcame truth in that case. Yeah. And then sometimes truth overcomes love, and we sort of revel in sharing bad news and maybe Samuel's the one who kind of gets it right here and says, I've got to say what I've got to say. And, and I'm going to say it to you as a human being that I care mm -hmm. about. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I love, I love that way of pulling them all together. Beautiful. I need a new youth retreat. I got to go talk about this one. You and I, let's plan a youth retreat (laughs) with puppets. I don't know who would come. (laughs) (laughs) Are you kidding me? We couldn't keep the people out. Give them little like worm hats. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh, Bobby, next week we are still in First Samuel, at least for a little what? bit. We'll be in chapter 16, verses 1 to 13, and we will also read some from Psalm 51, verses 10 to 14. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that text. We get the, the call of David and the sort of like all the older brothers and that whole thing. It's a good, it's a good text. Also one that you could use on a youth retreat. Fantastic. Bible Worm Youth Retreats, coming soon. To a retreat center near you. Near you. I'm at at a retreat center recording this very podcast right at this exact moment. (laughs) You're inspired, inspired. All right, Amy. Well, thanks for a, a great conversation today, and I'm looking forward to next week. As am I. Y'all be well. See you then. Bye. for joining us for this week's episode of Bible Worm. If you've enjoyed this free podcast, we hope you'll help us keep it going by joining our Patreon for as little as $4 per month. You can also sign up for other goodies like early access, video lectures, weekly liturgies, and more. 
Visit patreon.com slash Podcast for details. Bible Worm is produced by Bobby Williamson and edited by Joel and Laura Becker. Our theme song is sung by Colin Bagby. We're grateful to our many supporters for helping us keep the podcast going. A special thank you to our executive producer, Fox Valley Presbyterian Church in Geneva, Illinois, and to our newest supporters, Enico Ferenzi, David Marion Clark, Leanne Rose, Amy Larson, Derek Boggs, and Becky Fetters. Join us again next week when we read 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 1 through 13, and Psalm 51, verses 1 through 10, and get to meet another leader in their youth, David. Until then, keep on.